Luke chapter 14. One Sabbath, when he, Jesus, went to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees, they were watching him carefully. That word there for watching him uh, is inquisitive attention. It's actually used to describe, it's, the, the little translation is like an eagle that is, uh, that is watching a small bird. It's like a predator about to take on some prey. And behold, there was a man before him who had dropsy. And Jesus responded to the lawyers and the Pharisees there saying, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remained silent. Then he took him, this man, and, and healed him and then sent him away. And he turned and said to them, which one of you having a, a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on a Sabbath day would not immediately pull him out? And they couldn't reply to these things. So now he told a parable to those who were invited when he noticed how they were choosing the place of honor, saying to them, listen, when you're invited by someone to a wedding feast, don't sit down in a place of honor. Let someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. And he who invited you both will come and say to you, hey, give your place to this person. And then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. But instead, when you're invited, go and sit in the lowest place. So that when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you'll be honored in the presence of all who sit at the table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. He said also to the man who had invited him, listen, when you give a dinner or a banquet, don't invite just your friends, your brothers and sisters, or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return, and then you're repaid. But instead, when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. So when one of those who was reclining at the table with him heard these things, he said to him, blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. But Jesus said to him, a man once gave a great banquet and invited many. And at the time for the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. So the first one said to him, listen, I have bought a field and I must go out and see it. Please have me excused. Another one said, I have bought five yoke of oxen and I go to examine them. Please have me excused. Another said, listen, I just married a wife and therefore I cannot come. So the servant came and reported these things to his master. And the master of the house became angry and said to his servant, listen, go out quickly to the streets and the lanes of the city and bring in the poor and the crippled and the blind and the lame. And the servant said, sir, what you've commanded has been done and, and still there's more room. And so the master said to the servant, go out to the highways and the hedges and compel people to come in that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those who are invited shall taste my banquet." Not the easiest teaching of Jesus, is it? And there's a lot in there, and we'll just kind of touch on a few different things. My hope is that you'll take time this week to dig into this passage for yourselves, asking the question, okay, Jesus, how am I living into the truths of your word? How does my life reflect the heart that you reveal? 
But we see these themes present in this meal with Jesus. Jesus at a Pharisee's home, one of the religious leaders, the religious elite that thought that they had figured out the rules to please God. But in this meal, we see God's grace for us. That we are the poor, the blind, the crippled, the lame. Urged, compelled is the word, to join God's great banquet. That God has a table prepared for us. And we, in our spiritual poverty, with nothing to offer for our own salvation... The spiritually crippled, made powerless by sin. The spiritually blind, unable to see truth for ourselves. The spiritually lame, unable to come to God on our own. We are the ones that God goes out of his way, goes to the ends of the earth to grab a hold of, to bring in, to have a seat at his table. We also see here, that God's grace is the foundation for Christian community. You see, Jesus is, is engaging in this meal in front of his disciples, but it's gonna be his disciples that take the memory of this meal with them after Jesus is resurrected and ascended into heaven, and they're wrestling through, what does it mean to follow Jesus in our world today? And they're gonna remember this story. They're gonna remember this dinner. They're gonna remember the things Jesus said, and it is going to radically impact the way that they live their lives in community what their table looks like and what i wonder is if our preconceived notions of what god is like what pleases god or or, or the or the culture that we're living in that tells us this is the way to experience abundant life if it more informs our table our our community the way that we're opening our hearts and our homes to others than actually what jesus says and what jesus does I mean, as I read this passage, I, I, I'm deeply convicted, looking at my own life. Compared to the way that Jesus invites me to live and the way that Jesus invites me to open my home and to be intentional with who has a seat at my table, recognizing that Jesus has made a seat at his table for me. So why, when the table has such power to bring healing, to create community, to reveal God's grace, does it often go so terribly wrong? Well, the story starts with the healing of a man with dropsy. It's not just, a, I, as I've read this passage before, I've had this size, like it just seems like a random occurrence. It just happened to be that that was the illness inflicting this man at this dinner but it's actually this powerful picture of what's happening in the hearts and souls of everyone at that meal. You see, dropsy, I didn't really even know what that meant. He said, you know, is that somebody that's just really klutzy and just drops everything, somebody that's lost their sense of balance. Uh, but no, dropsy is actually, the, if you look it up, uh, the word today is now is edema, which I'm sure for lots of you that really helps out, doesn't it? But edema is, uh, it is, it is swelling often in, uh, in legs and ankles or uh, in, in arms that uh, it is the, the result of an infection that creates, of an internal infection that creates an external swelling in the body, the retention of fluid. 
In the ancient world, it was called the rich man's disease because it was a picture of, of the danger of limitless consumption. But the healing of this man's physical dropsy, this, this external swelling because of an internal infection is a powerful picture of what we could call the spiritual dropsy of everyone at that table. That rather than being puffed up with excess fluid, these guests are, are puffed up with pride and self-importance. I mean, there's this sense that there's a sort of like every man for themselves kind of posture at the meal, jockeying for position, trying to, to one-up one another, to have the place of honor. And we don't necessarily have the same culture where at our meals and, you know, if the person sitting closest to the host is the person that is most honored. But I think culturally we know what that looks like to jockey or to position or to one up, to try to show everyone in the room why you matter, why you're more important, why you're significant, as if the entire room revolves around you. This is how tables go terribly wrong. When we become puffed up in pride, when our, ta our table communities become elitist or exclusive or competitive, a place of harm instead of healing. I mean, has there been a time that you've been wounded by somebody else's self-centeredness? And even more difficult of a question is there a time that you've wounded somebody else because of your self-centeredness and so just as these guests witnessed this man with dropsy physically healed deflated as jesus healed him of this fluid disorder so now jesus is going to to challenge the egos of the people in that room so that they could be healthily deflated into a proper understanding of who they are and god's heart for them now, pride is one of those things that's actually kind of difficult to uh, define. Though throughout the Bible, God makes it really clear that he hates it. Like he he exalts, puts it above, you know, I know uh, culturally we almost have this sort of cultural list of, of the worst kinds of sin. The things that God really hates or the things that, that he really despises, the things we should really be against. But biblically, if we were to look at what God actually hates the most... It's pride, which I think affects a whole lot more of us than sometimes some of the categorical sins that we can put up on a pedestal. One Jewish philosopher defined pride as thinking more highly of oneself than is just out of love for oneself. Too much self-esteem from self-centeredness. Now, maybe it might help to, to say what pride is not because we use that word loosely. The pride is not the same thing as self-respect, of having a sense of dignity or value, that you matter because you do matter. Pride isn't healthy self-esteem. Having a clear, uh, as Romans 12.3 12, says, uh, talking about evaluating yourself with sober judgment, it means a right perspective, not valuing yourself in terms of beauty or wealth or fame, but rather your true identity, be rooted, confident in that true identity and calling of God on your life. Pride is not simply love of self. 
I mean, in fact, uh, Jesus makes it clear that there's an assumption that we would love ourselves, we would take care of ourselves, of our souls and our bodies. Now, obviously, that can become excessive and obsessive. Pride is also not the sense of feeling proud about something. Like, I have great pride in my children. They delight my heart. My face lights up when they walk in the room. So this may be why this, this picture of dropsy is a, is a good picture for us about what pride, that, that, the pride that God hates, what that is. That unhealthy pride expands the self. And we might use this phrase, we would say somebody is full of themselves, puffed up, that they have an overinflated sense of ego. That prideful people resent any boundary that would restrict their freedom. That prideful people want to do what they want to do when they want to do it. And pride ultimately leads to disaster. Proverbs 16 says that pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. That pride destroys community because at its core, Prideful people are focused on themselves. They tend to see others from the perspective of what they can do for them instead of what we can do for others. Prideful people uh, assert themselves in a way that exalts them over others. And ultimately, pride displaces God. In fact, C.S. Lewis quotes as that pride is a complete anti-God state of mind. In other words, that if you've decided to enthrone yourself as king, then you have by default dethroned God as Lord. Why? Because in our pride, we begin to believe that we are self-sufficient, that we make life work, that we are what matters most. And we recognize, for just a split second, we step back and we, we see God for who he is, that he is bigger and better in every way than we are. And yet so often in our everyday ordinary lives, it is so easy for us to place ourselves as the star of the show. And our greatest hurts and wounds come when people don't do for us what we expect them to do. Now, sometimes people say, I know I'm not prideful because actually I hate myself. Deep insecurity. But ironically, deep insecurity is in itself a form of pride. Because what it's saying is that I know who I am better than you do, God. And what I think about myself is more true than what you say about who I am. In both ways, what we feel, what we think, what we prioritize, what we want becomes center stage. It's pride and it puffs up. And so what does Jesus give as the prescription for pride, the healing for that spiritual dropsy? Take the lowest seat. Take the lowest seat. Now, does that literally mean that, you know, the cure for pride is that at every meal I go stand in the corner? No. 
What it does mean is that when I enter the room, I enter with the posture of there you are as compared to here I am. That when we enter into a conversation, the question becomes, is like, what is the, the hurt? What is the need? What is, what is the desire that you are expressing as compared to how can you meet my needs and fill my desires and, and heal my hurts? It's the lowering of a self. It's Ephesians 5 when it talks about the posture of a, of, a, of a husband towards his wife or a wife towards her husband. It is the lowering of oneself in order to lift up another. It is the DNA of Christian community. And how do we enter into that space? We recognize that God lowered himself for us. He, he, he uh, went, he, he died. I mean, I, there's really no more cliche than simply this. Jesus died for us so that we might live. And the invitation or the challenge is that we would begin to learn what it means to die to ourselves for the sake of others. And then the, the, the great reversal of the kingdom is that somehow in the dying, we discover true life. Now, again, I, I'm not preaching this from a posture of having achieved any of this. So, many, so often I see, whether it's in my marriage or in my parenting, and the way that I lead, how I lead with my own sense of self, with my own sense of need, prioritizing what I can get out of the people in the room as compared to how can I be a blessing for the people that I'm with. And so the point of this isn't to, to heap up guilt on ourselves. It instead, it's to, it's to turn to Jesus, let his forgiveness wash us clean so that we can begin one baby step, one stumbling step at a time to, to lean into this way of life. And in doing so, I think that we will discover what it means to truly live. And so we get this picture That the wise person is the one who takes the least important place at the banquet in order that they might be exalted by the host. Which ultimately we see is just simply the example of Jesus. Let me read Philippians 2. In fact, if you, if you have your Bible there, if you want to write next to this parable, Philippians 2. 1 through 11. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from his love, any participation in the spirit, any affection or sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Now listen to this. So do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. So have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he, being Jesus, was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but instead emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross." And so therefore, God has exal highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. 
Now Jesus moves to, from uh, addressing the people in the room that he's watching position themselves into places of importance and turns to actually the host. He's uh, deflating everyone's dropsy in this story. That beyond worrying about what seats we get as guests, our place at the table, there's this question that, this, this other question of, who are we offering seats to as guests at our table? Who are we making room for, space for at our tables, in our homes, in our lives? And the point Jesus makes is not that hospitality amongst friends is necessarily bad, but just that it's not commendable. There's nothing special about it. That Jesus calls us to serve those who cannot repay us for our kindness. Again, this is what he's done for us. We being the crippled, the poor, the lame, the blind. Now, it's interesting to note is that where does that, that list of four come from? The poor, the blind, the crippled, the lame. It actually comes from Leviticus 21 when it talks about the, the requirements of being a priest in God's temple. And what it's saying is that, uh, is that if you want to be a priest because you're representing the wholeness of God, you can't be, there can't be a deformity in any way. This is back in, in the Old Testament temple worship. And so no one that was, that was lacking, no one that was, uh, that was blemished or broken, no one that was blind uh, or, or had a, a physical flaw in themselves could serve as a priest in the temple. And literally the phrase there is, they couldn't break the bread of God in the temple. They couldn't fellowship with God as representatives of God before the people. Now, unfortunately, that, that prescription, which was really only about being a priest, not about anyone being able to enter into the presence of God, it, it got uh, elevated to be able to say that, that no one who is blemished or deformed could enter into the temple at all, into the temple gates. But actually, that's not anywhere in the Bible. But there was this understanding that if you were flawed in any way, there was something wrong with you that God could not accept. I wonder how many of us actually still believe with, live in, under that kind of theology. This thought that if there's anything wrong with you in any way, then there's something that God cannot accept. And I know all the things that are wrong with me. So therefore, if I'm really honest, if I'm going to truth tell before God, what I'm going to realize, I'm going to say is actually what I believe about God is that you cannot accept me because I know there's something wrong with me. So I can spend the rest of my life striving to earn a place at God's table where God has said, the moment you begin to strive, you've lost your seat. But the moment that you quit striving to receive what I've already done, that I've accepted you in your brokenness, in your vulnerability, in your pain, in your wounds, in your failures, in your shame, I have opened my arms wide and set a place for you at the table. Then you can come and eat. I mean, it's amazing how Jesus flips this expectation of God amongst the religious. I mean, look who Jesus welcomed in. And then he says, because I've opened my heart to you in this way, I've made a space for everyone, in, uh, everyone at my table in this way, I now expect you to live in that same reality. 
And we see that Jesus, that his primary form of mission was through meals and meals with everyone, especially those that the religious establishment found unacceptable or even repulsive. Uh, Tim Chester wrote a book. It's actually where we got the title of this from, Meals with Jesus. If you want to jot that down, it's a, it's a great book, a great thing to do as a family. Tim Chester uh, is the guy's name, Meals with Jesus. But this was his quote. I referenced it earlier. What he said is, Jesus didn't run projects, establish ministries, create programs, or put on events. He ate meals. If you routinely share meals and you have a passion for Jesus, then you'll be doing mission. It's not that meals save people. People are saved through the gospel message, but meals will create natural opportunities to share that message in a context that resonates powerfully with what you're saying. In other words, that, that in sharing a meal with somebody, especially those who feel abandoned or lost or vulnerable or voiceless, that we are embodying the grace of God. There's a, a theologian named Simon Carey Holt, who also is a chef. And listen to what he wrote. It's good to be reminded that the table is a very ordinary place, a place so routine and everyday, it's easily overlooked as a place of ministry. And this business of hospitality that lies at the heart of Christian mission, it's a very ordinary thing. It's not rocket science, nor is it terribly glamorous. Yet it is the very ordinariness of the table and of the ministry we exercise there that renders these elements of Christian life so important to the mission of the church. Most of what you do as a community of hospitality will go unnoticed and unrecognized. At base, hospitality is simply about providing a space for God's spirit to move. Setting a table, cooking a meal, washing the dishes is the ministry of facilitation. Providing a space in which people feel loved and welcomed and where God's spirit can be at work in their lives. I know one of the uh, reasons people will give for why they, or why they wish they did more ministry or they were more involved on mission or could serve more is because of our busyness, that we don't have time. But the amazing thing is, is that we all have time to eat. And we began to view our meals as mission. Basically, we have seven times three, 21 times a week in which we can engage on God's mission with people. What would it look like? And so here's the, here's the challenge we go into this week. I mean, as we've begun from the sense of this, our, our heart posture before God, as ones who've received from God, our heart posture towards people, that we are a people that seek to bless, not simply to, to claim what we want, to strive for uh, position or prestige, but then that we begin to create space and open up our hearts and our homes for others to encounter God over a simple meal. So what would it look like for you and for me for this week to say, I'm going to intentionally have one meal, whether it's at your home or at Bold Springs Coffee Shop. I'm gonna share a cup of coffee with somebody simply for the purpose of encouraging them, of hearing their story, of hearing their heart, 
and giving God the space to move in this relationship. And even take it a step further, beyond just simply friends or people that could repay you back for the favor, people that you wanna get in good with, people that have resources or connections, relationships that you wanna establish, what would it look like if just once this week we created space in our homes or in a coffee shop to share a meal with somebody that has nothing to offer, with somebody that's in a place of pain or struggle or loss, somebody that it comes from a different context or a different background that thinks differently or looks differently, and that the only point of the meal is to get to know them, their heart, and to hear their story and to see how God might move. What would that look like? I mean, how would that begin to transform this community? If simply the 100 people sitting in this room said, one time this week, I'm going to do the thing that I already do. I'm not having to create, you know, Thursday at 2 p.m., like carve out new space in my schedule, start waking up at 4 a.m. No, I'm just gonna do what I already do. I'm just gonna do it with a little bit more intentionality. Can we do that? Why don't we? Because it's scary. It's scary. But again, the reason it's scary is because we think it's up to us to perform, to have the right answers, to do the right thing. But if we enter into that posture to simply say, God, I'm trusting you in this space, and all I'm here to do is to hear the heart and the story of the person that I'm with. I'm not here to fix them or solve their problems or to meet all their needs. God, I'm simply here to just be with this person. That's it. No agenda. Just to be with and see what God does. Another one of the reasons that we don't is that it, it seems too costly. It costs time. We feel like we have to have our homes in order. That everything needs to be spick and span and put up. And everything needs to be just perfect. <laughs> but what if we just thought about inviting people into the ordinariness of our lives again if, if from starting from the original position which is that we, we see ourselves rightly before God as one who is receiving everything from him that are there to bless others then I have nothing to prove to you by how well I cook or how clean my house is and in fact, if there's dirty laundry piled up in the bedroom, that doesn't actually change anything about what God thinks about me. And if my primary position that I'm entering into this room from is a God who opened his heart to me and all of my flaws and imperfections, and so now I begin to open my heart up to others, then the dirty laundry in the bedroom changes nothing. If the best meal I can cook is a scrambled egg and a peanut butter and jelly sandwich— it changes nothing because the point is the conversation. The point is the space. The point is the posture that I am loved and therefore all I'm here to do is to hear your heart and to hear your story and then see what God does. What could God do? And so the invitation this morning it's quite simple. Where are the places in your heart that you need to receive the unconditional love of a God who showed up in our mess? 
when we were poor and lame and blind and crippled and opened his arms and welcomed us in and sat us down and fed our souls? Where do you need to receive the love of a God who doesn't see you for your failures and your shame and your insecurities and your baggage, but sees you as a, his child? Where do you need to just let God love you and sit you down at the table with him? That's the invitation. But the challenge, the challenge is, who is God inviting you to open your heart and your home, your table to? And does your table, whether that's literally your kitchen table, or if you eat most of your meals at tacos and beer and chilies, do most of your tables that you sit around, are they with people that look and think just like you do? Or people that you're hoping to get something from? Or people that can help advance you in life? Or do our tables begin to reflect the heart of God? What would that look like? For just one meal this week, can you enter into that challenge? I will. I will with you. It feels scary. But I know that's God is calling me to do. Will you join me? Let's pray. Lord, God, I thank you just for the incredible hospitality we were shown last week. Sitting in the homes of so many different people with such different backgrounds and the stories that were shared and the things that happened and the ways that you showed up, God. Lord, I don't want that to be my life because it was on a mission trip. God, may that be our lives because that's just the way we live. So Lord, I pray for each person here. First, Lord, I pray, will you show them any place in, our heart, in their heart that they need to receive your love and your grace. They need to hear your voice calling them come have a seat that you look them in the eye that you've never turned your face away that you see them and you know them and you love them and then God I ask will you call to mind who is it that you're inviting us to show that same kind of love and grace to who is one person this week what is one meal that we could share with somebody who's hurting or lost or lonely. Somebody that looks different than us, thinks different than us. How do you, in this congregation, move us from a place of pride and self-importance to a people of blessing? consciously 
consistently lower ourselves to lift up those around us that move past our fear, that move past our pride, that move past our busyness. To create space for others. Lord, will you do this in me? Will you do this in us? We pray these things in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen. So as we invite you to stand and worship, And as we worship, we invite you to that symbol of invitation of Jesus' table and communion, the the bread that Jesus broke saying, this is my body given for you. The invitation into the presence of God with all of your failures and your sins and your mistakes and that cup that he held. I said, this is my blood shed for the forgiveness of sins the blood of a new covenant, of oneness with our creator. As we take communion, we we come to the table. It's the phrase we use. We literally come to the table receiving from Jesus what he has done for us that we could be filled by Jesus so that we could do for others. That's what communion is. And so as you take communion, may it not just be some religious ritual that we do on Sundays. May it be a, a posture, an act of faith of receiving to be released into the kingdom. We'll have some people up front that are serving communion, the bread and the wine. If you prefer, we have, uh, we have cups of um, gluten-free and grape juice that are also in baskets in the back of the room. But we just invite you now, whenever you're ready to come kneel, to come meet with our prayer team, to let God minister to your heart and as you stand up to take communion as that sign of faith. Let us worship together.